You're listening to a podcast from the Tudor Institute Ireland Conference. The seventh annual Tudor Institute Ireland Interdisciplinary Conference took place at NUI Galway in August 2017. The conference was generously supported by the College of Arts, Social Sciences and Celtic Studies at NUI Galway, the School of Humanities at NUI Galway, the Moore Institute at NUI Galway, the Disciplines of History and English at NUI Galway, the Women's History Association of Ireland and Marsh's Library. As in previous years, the majority of papers were recorded for podcasting by Real Smart Media, in association with UCD's History Hub. There are now more than 180 podcasts from previous Tudor and Stuart Ireland conferences freely available. To access this archive, go to historyhub.ie forward slash podcasts or visit tudorstuartireland.com. In this episode, a recording of the closing plenary address, which is given by Professor Patricia Palmer from Maynooth University. Her paper was entitled Irish Country House Poetry in the Early Modern Period, an Eclectic Genre. Professor Palmer was introduced by Professor Mary Louise Coulahan from NUI Galway. It's my great pleasure to welcome and introduce Pat Palmer today. Um, Pat's work on literature and language has pioneered new ways of thinking about violence, conflict and communication in early modern Ireland. Pat is the author of uh, a 2001 book, Language and Conquest in Early Modern Ireland, English Renaissance Literature and Elizabethan Imperial Expansion, and also with Cambridge University Press in 2014, The Severed Head and the Grafted Tongue, Literature, Translation and Violence in Early Modern Ireland. She's also written numerous articles and book chapters on the ideologies of translation and the aesthetics of violence. Pat has recently taken up the position of Professor of English at Maynooth University, having previously worked at King's College London and the Universities of York and Oxford. And the title of her keynote today is Irish Country House Poetry in the Early Modern Period, a Neglected Genre. Please welcome Pat Palmer. Thank you very much. Thank you very much uh, for that generous introduction and thank yous to the organisers for inviting me and particularly to Evan who has been unfailing and is off now doing something more, you know, for somebody else. Um, I want to begin by thinking about visibility and states of knowledge and to do so I need to begin not in Ireland but in fairyland. I mean, of course, Spencer's fairyland. One of the most peculiar qualities of fairyland is its lack of a hinterland. Castles, cave dwellings, hermit cells pop up out of nowhere. They arise not so much out of the landscape as out of a narrative need. As soon as a knight leaves the scene of one adventure, the set vanishes behind him, swallowed up by the setting for the next. Let's look at this pattern of serial erasure by following Guyon, who's the hero of book two, for a canto or so. Having tramped after Mammon through a labyrinth of underworld vaults, Guyon returns to the surface and collapses in a shady delve. There he gets first aid from an angel until Palmer comes along, whereby the angel, quote, gan display his painted nimble wings and vanished quite away. It is into this vacuum, this left empty space, a wonderfully evocative phrase, that the Paynim brothers, Saracen brothers, now gallop. But the brothers are quickly routed and Guyon and Arthur, quote, forth passed their way in fair accord. They pass not so much through place as through the measurement of distance. So talked they the whiles, 
They wasted had much way and measured many miles. Just then the house of Alma appeared out of nowhere. They spied a goodly castle placed for by a river in a pleasant dale. But for all the solidity of its subsequent allegorical realisation, when Skyon and Arthur wrap up their visit, the castle disappears. Canto 10 left them feasting in its dining hall. Canto 11 finds them out in the open, waiting by a ford for a ferry. The house of Alma has vanished. And as soon as the ferryman, who now materialises, launches his bark into the stream, everything else falls away as well. Ere long they rode were quite out of sight, and fast the land behind them fled. The Fairy Queen offers us no mappable space, no cumulatively emerging landscape. There are no cardinal points to orient us, no landmarks from which we can take our bearings, no old haunts which we get to revisit. Reading the Fairy Queen can be oddly like drawing with, and you have to be of a certain generation to remember this, drawing with Etch-a-Sketch as the stylus moves over the glass screen shapes damsels, saracens, castles appear. But when we shake the box, the little polyester beads beneath once more coat the écran magique, as it was called, with aluminium powder and everything is wiped clean again. I want to suggest that such a condition of erasure characterises not just the fairy queen, but early modern Ireland. Not only as it is refracted through English texts of the period, but through a a critical dispensation still wedded to the Anglosphere. While recent work like Andrew Hadfield's biography of Edmund Spencer has has emphasised the Irish context of works like The Fairy Queen, Ireland still features like the never simultaneously co-present world of The Fairy Queen. From early modern Ireland, we hear overwhelmingly, only one set of voices. 16th century Ireland becomes proleptically an exclusively Anglophone zone. What is needed to capture Ireland in its complexities, I want to suggest today, is a comparative approach. What we have instead are seemingly infrangible disciplinary boundaries. So if these, this, these walls between Gaelic scholars and Irish scholars, Gaelic scholars toil away the thankless task of editing the enormous bardic corpus, English scholars blanche in the face of, say, the 500 poems and 710 untranslated pages of TCD's recently published bardic miscellany, and they scurry back in relief to the relatively transparent arcana of the Fairy Queen. The result is a literary and historiographical historiographical gap that disturbingly reproduces the original colonial erasure. Surveying this extraordinary inattention to early modern Gaelic culture across a range of disciplines, the editors of Gaelic Ireland 1250 to 1650 morosely conclude that, quote, the Gaelic past is something of a severed head. Having as you've just heard, uh, only recently turned with great relief from writing about severed heads, I find myself now confronting the metaphorical severed head of that amputated Gaelic past. Ireland wasn't just a background, after all, to the English Renaissance. It is a world on the brink of rupture, exile and silence, 
precisely because the world represented by Spencer and his contemporaries has erupted into their world. It is therefore a crucial site of encounter, a contact zone within Europe itself, which, as we face another time of rupture, has much to tell us about cultural contact, contact and the limits of cultural understanding in a time of crisis. The pattern of confiscation and colonisation set in motion by the Tudor conquest meant that the Gaelic-Irish, the Old English and the New English now lived together in conflictual contiguity. And what I'm advocating today is a comparative practice that is fully attentive to that complexity. The contiguity, and I'm fascinated by this contigu- the sheer contiguity, um, is shown <clears throat> in this map, which you first saw this morning um, in, in Tom's fascinating paper. Um, it's George Legg's 1959, sorry, 15, so it happened if you live in the past so much, um, 1595 map of the Monster Plantation, which shows the New English in their confiscated castles. The confiscated castles, you notice, are beautifully coloured in, and then the domain of the Anglo-Irish and the Old English is this kind of vague, anemic wash of castles, blanks, and these oddly whale-shaped hills. Um, but I, I, I'm really interested in mapping that world completely and colouring in those blank spots, which is the image I want to suggest here. Um, it's just an accident of preservation. But here we have Clan Wirish in North Kerry. But of course, this kind of hole has opened up, this gap has opened up. And as Tom also mentioned this morning, I'm involved with David Baker and Willie Maley um, in starting a project which we're calling Mac Morris, which is an attempt to work out who is on the ground um, and who is writing, who are the cultural figures across all languages, which is Irish and English and Latin, but also Spanish, um, predominantly, um, in this period. So try to fill in these blanks in the landscape. But if we move, zone in for a moment, we see this really intriguing conjunction here, which is Spencer's Castle, which is one of the coloured in ones, nicely coloured in, but to the west of it are a whole series of castles um, that nobody is kind of particularly interested in. So if we look at the castles just west of Kilcolman in Duhallow, um, we, we come to the O'Queeve landscape. And one of those castles, I don't know which, maybe somebody can point out, um, it belongs to, to the poet Angus O'Dolly Fionn, whose family had been the hereditary bards of the Macquarie Moor since the 12th century. So, in two castles, a morning's ride, I haven't written it, but I suspect it must be about a morning's canter, one from the other, Uh, two poets are writing. What is remarkable is the overlap in what they are writing. In one of these castles, a poet with an instinct for romance is writing about a callow youth in a lonely hermitage who is visited one night by a succuba sent to test his holiness and specifically his virginity. Elsewhere, he writes this poet about an infant and a hand so steeped in blood that nothing can wash it clean. We think we know where we are. This must be Kilcolman Castle, where, with charms and hidden arts, Spencer's enchanter, Archimago, frames out of liquid air the tender parts of false Una, the succuba who tricks Red Cross Knight into bathing himself in wanton bliss and wicked joys. The bloodied hand must surely be that of Ruddyman, the orphaned 
infant who embays his little hand in the gore blood screaming from his dead mother's grisly wound. This is partly a teaser because I can't go into um, what how, the full story of what is being written, but these are, of course, tropes in The Fairy Queen, but they are also equally and identically tropes in two poems written to the Blessed Virgin by our friend Angus O'Dolly, um, who uses exactly the sh- this same shared romance motif when writing Evoshkeil Ma Erwira, where a succubus comes to a hermit and tries to tempt him and in another poem tells about a virgin who is seduced, gives birth, in horror kills her child. The child's blood in this case um, stains her hand. So it's absolutely fascinating that so close together there's no question here of influence. There's no question of one person reading the other. It's precisely the failure to read each other and yet to have so much in common that is both fascinating and ultimately tragic. So what we're seeing, I mean, there's a whole long story to be told about that and I'm not going to go there today, but it's a story for someone sometime to follow. What we're seeing played out between one castle and the next is what we might call unintentional Uh, unaware intertextuality. I'm not suggesting for a moment, as I say, that they're reading one another's work or that they even know of it. Rather, what is striking is that they are at once so close and worlds apart. But if these shared romance tropes run along parallel lines that we'll never meet, the relationship of the genre to which I want to now turn, country house poetry, is more nakedly oppositional. Among the 1,380 poems in Catherine Sims' database of bardic poetry, 28 are what she characterises as house poems. This paper asks what would happen if we were to view these poems as united not just by motif, which is what Sims suggests, but by genre. What would happen if we were to think of them as I think we should, at least as a thought experiment, think of them as a distinctly Gaelic manifestation of country house poetry? Up until now, country house poetry has been seen as a genre confined to those powerhouses of Protestant proto-modernity, England and Holland. Roland Green defines it as a kind of poetry developed especially in 16th century Britain that celebrates the home of a patron, treating the house and its landscape as an instance of civility and culture. Alistair Fowler, horrified by what he calls the unfortunate results produced when literary critics flirt with history and most egregiously with Marxist history, um, insists that English country house poetry is really a species of Georgic on the grounds that Georgic is a genre innocent of social or economic reflection. Despite Fowler's strictures, however, it's hard to see a poetry vowed to naturalising privilege and eulogising those who exercised it as anything other than political. Moreover, If it stresses continuity and immemorial rights, it does so precisely because, as Don Wayne argues, it is symptomatic of a changing historical situation. Against a background of upheaval, the genre serves to to mediate change, doing the cultural work that allowed 
for the transfer of power from one group to another, for the renegotiation of social and economic relations and for the emergence of new subjectivities. A piquant symmetry, as well as a striking confirmation of the genre's inescapably political orientation, becomes apparent, apparent once we extend the geographical domain of country house poetry to include Ireland. For the economic and ideological changes that English practitioners of the genre were responding to at home in England were in part changes which, when exported to Ireland, would sweep away the castles and the castle culture celebrated by Gaelic practitioners of the genre. Don Wayne is thinking of England when he says that country house poetry offered, I quote, a particular kind of narrative structure through which a culture caught between two epochs and not yet able to theorise that transformation um, it was undergoing represented itself to itself, unquote. But when in a further concatenation of politics and poetics, the agents of that transformation, that is nascent capitalism and militant expansionism, were exported to Ireland in the form of conquest and colonisation, Irish country house poetry, the very genre which eulogised court culture, was on hand to mourn its destruction. To realise that a recognisable but very distinct form of country house poetry operated in parallel to and predated English and Dutch examples is not only to extend the geographical distribution of the genre, but to redefine its form and politics. Big houses, houses, big houses, big houses of the Protestant ascendancy tradition loom large in the imaginary of Irish literature in English. But before the houses celebrated by George Moore, Somerville and Ross or Elizabeth Bowen, there were other houses <clears throat> and an earlier house literature. Yeats knows that stored in the great memory of Thur Bali Lee is the Thur Valley E Lee of the Burks of Clan Rickard. Before that ruin came for centuries, rough men at arms cross gartered to the knees or shod in iron, climbed to the narrow stairs and certain men at arms there were whose images in the great memory stored came with loud cry and panting breast to break upon a sleeper's rest while their great wooden dice beat on the board. Of course, it wasn't just the great wooden dice that rang out in the Gaelic court. The voice of the Rakira reciting eulogies, including eulogies to castles, and the wire strum harp of the accompanist sung out, rang out as well. If we are to see the Irish literary tradition whole, we need to engage not just with the literary houses built on the metaphorical ruins of an earlier tradition of house writing, we need to attend to those earlier poems as well. Country house poetry, Heather de Brough tells us, is inter alia an attempt, I quote her, to control the relationship between the inside and the outside. As I mentioned, early modern Ireland has been viewed largely from the outside. Gaelic country house poetry, however, brings us inside, indoors, to the epicentre of a world that had no reason to believe that it was on the cusp of calamitous change. For a quick sketch of two very different views of the same object, we only need to glance at two opposed descriptions of Fiachmach A. O'Brien's house at Balnacar in Glenmalure. Spencer's 
Our first view is the view of a particularly hostile outsider, having witnessed the baleful defeat which Fiac had inflicted on Sir Arthur Grey at Glenmalure on the 25th of August 1580. In a view of the present state of Ireland, <clears throat> Irenaeus declared that Fiac grew out of the dunghill. Allegorised as Melengian, he lives like an animal in variously a den or a hollow cave. The rock in which he won't dwell is wondrous strong and hewn far underground, a dreadful depth, how deep no man can tell. But some do say it goeth down to hell. For Spencer, Fiuk lives in an anti-house, a concavity hollowed out by allegory. The Gaelic poet Ruri Makra, however, eulogises Fiuk by dedicating a country house poem to his timber-framed castle. The poem opens with question, How is the house within? And Makra answers his question by bringing us inside into the warmth of the festive court on court Kovola. Macra's poem allows us to identify the generic features of Gaelic country house poetry. In the typical country house, Gaelic country house poem, we meet the court, the castle's idealised fellowship in the house tour that characterises the poem. The poet arises in great excitement and then is taken on a tour of the house or takes us on a tour of the house. In that tour, we see poets and harpists perform, nobles distributing treasures, historians exfoliating genealogies, satin-clad maidens with lapdogs at their feet embroidering silks, warriors reclining beneath the glint of their suspended weapons, armourers, shipbuilders, shipwrights, all kinds of things going on. And when, as often, these castles are described as enchanted, we need to believe it. The castle in these poems is often called a fairy castle, a sheath through, and everything associated with it, racehorses, troops, music, is also touched with the strong magic conjured by the word she. In England, Carrie Boyd McBride argues, quote, the country house itself functioned as a chthonic source of legitimacy, unquote. In Ireland, however, the castle didn't merely emblematise the chthonic. It was underpinned by the natural forces of the she. This deep-seated conviction of, that the castle channeled supernatural energies goes some way towards explaining why, as we will shortly see, castles come alive. Even at the best of times, <clears throat> the bard's consciousness of mutability was at least as finely honed, honed as Spencer's. In Irish country house poetry, eulogy often turns to elegy, the poet who seems to be bringing us into the intensity of a living moment turns out to be bringing us only to a place of memory, to the afterglow of a lost world. But to the theme of mutability and the death of princes was now added the depredations of all-out war. So it is with Macrass' poem on Fiuk's castle. This is how things used to be until Ballinacar was burnt down in April 1581 by Captain Stanley. This movement from the plenitude of court life to its destruction, evoked by Macra, captures the trajectory of Gaelic country house poetry. But intriguingly, the forces driving that destruction would themselves be legitimised in the country house poetry of another tradition of country house poetry, 
English country house poetry to capture that sense of a cultural confluence that is also a culture clash, to capture a sense of two sides writing about houses who are also equally intent on storming and destroying houses. Um, to do that, I want to look at two country house poems, one in Irish, one in English, and each of them, I think, at the acme of its respective national tradition. The poems I want to put back to back are Ben, ben Johnson's to Penshurst, and to begin with, Aki Ahosa's Mihikshin Ara Nuriak. Ahosa's poem, It Is Time, O Fort of Kings, <clears throat> celebrates Amach Makuir's retaking of Enniskillen Castle from the English in May 1595. Ahosa pays his respects to the losses endured by the castle during its 15 months of English occupation through negative anaphora, near leg grafna greg, near chlein, gan hunger, gan kohor, without fairy steeds, without hunting, without glee, without trumpets, without assemblies. That done, he performs the rites of rededication by folding past and future together as things used to be in Enniskillen's once and future castle, so shall they be again. He lovingly enumerates the immemorial rituals of court life, which he promises the castle, you will now see again, the hefe. The generic scenes of court life, which we've identified above, are here confidently launched into a future continuous tense. Henceforth, Ahosa tells the castle, you will see fairy steeds on the gallops, galleys on the water, poets and minstrels in, a bank, in the banqueting hall. The greig she, the fairy steeds are a reminder of those Chthonic forces which ghost the, the castle's uncanny animation to which we now turn. Ohosa addresses the castle as though it were alive. Mihol, excuse my pronunciation. Mihig shin ara nuriog lower hoit erf fulingus the im shniv a hort dreog tlaw thirimhial tash ni himnach it is time, O fort of kings, enough care hast thou endured, O soft branched court, dry and bright yet moist, what thou hast gotten was no one day's trouble. That's Bergen's translation. Ohosa speaks to it in, in the vocative, a ra, a hort, a inish, O fortress, O court, O island, endlessly. His second person verb endings ascribe sensory experiences and emotions to a building. Heelish, urish. Strange things happen when a poet talks to a building. To address, as Elizabeth Bowen tells us, one must personify. In the case of Penshurst, second person address, thou art not Penshurst, never develops into full-blown personification. But in the genre at large, houses have a habit of turning into bodies. The Dutch master of the genre, Constantine Huygens, were told, um, I, I'm quoting De Vries here, uh, Constantine um, Huygens followed Vitruvius in taking the relations between the various parts of the human body as the ideal model for his estate. Andrew Marvell um, in Upon Appleton House similarly um, swells into the house similarly swells into Baroque life, yet thus the laden house does sweat and scarce endues the master great. But when he comes, the swelling hall stirs and the sphere grows spherical. 
Ahosa, however, anticipates both. Remember, this is 1592. Panzerist is 1616. Huygens is later still. Uh, by following the logic of apostrophe and imagining <coughs> Enniskillen as a living body. It has a head, kjown, a face, eig, a heart, kree. Moreover, it has a mind, agna, a mind capable of reliving the trauma of its occupation by the English. The poet cancels it against sowing its mind with regrets and succumbing to mental despair. Its nightmares, he tells it, are just that, Ashlinga, and they are mercifully over. But Enniskillen Castle isn't just a body, it is a gendered body. It has breasts, kirche, and its hillsides are skirted with dress fringes, kiomsiv. Nor is it just feminised, it is sexualised. Those breasts are in a state of red ripple, red nippled arousal, aroused by the caress of disconcertingly eroticised feet and hooves from the footprints of a band of poets, from the grazing of outlaws' castle, thou shalt, cattle thou shalt see the swelling breasts of thy sunny slopes reddened on top. As Judith Butler reminds us, gender reality is spatial, and certainly in the castle poems, the court is a redoubt of masculinity, where women are little more than an ornamental appanage, damsels weaving or a chieftain's wife thrown a commendatory bone in the penultimate quatrain. It's hardly surprising, therefore, that this homosocial collective should be housed within the concavity of a feminised castle. Of the 28 house poems identified by Catherine Sims, seven directly address a castle in this fashion, apostrophising a house, farewell, sweet, um, and thereby addressing the residents, the residents, rather than the resident, is one of the tropes of the genre. Ahosa, however, is doing so not only a good decade before the country house poems of Ben Jonson and Amelia Lanier, but by having the castle stand for a collective, the court, rather than an individual, a private owner, he is launching it in a very different ideological journey. The distinction comes into focus when we set Mihik Shin alongside Ben Jonson's to Penshurst. Superficially, the similarities are striking. Both are verse tributes that, play, that displace the address from the resident, or crucially residence in the case of the Irish poem, um, of the castle onto the residence itself. But if Ahosa and Irish country house poems generally celebrate the court as a collective elite community, English country house poetry celebrates an individual owner in an increasingly privatised space. That ideological difference is picked up in the different subcategories of metonymy used in each case. And I'm sorry to the historians in the company that I'm going into such English speak for a little bit. Uh, metonymy works by substitution, but Johnson and Ahosa each opt for a different one of the five possible kinds of substitution identified by Quintilian. Johnson opts for the substitution of an associated object for its possessor. That is, he substitutes the manor for its master, Robert Sidney. Ahosa substitutes the container, the castle, for the thing contained. The thing contained is the court. It is not just the owner. It is not just a mockir. 
to have an associated object stand in, stand in for its possessor works to confirm individual ownership. To have the container stand in for the thing contained, a, a thing potentially more inclusive than a possessor alone, embraces a wider collective. Let's see how the possessor category of metonymy used in Penshurst helps to construct it as a private space. Johnson's opening flourish of Litotes, that is not, 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 his opening flourish of Litotes establishes a uniqueness that will ultimately exclude all but its titled owner. Thou art not Penserest, built to envious show or touch or marble, nor canst boast a row of polished pillars or a roof of gold, etc. This privileging of Sydney's neo-medieval manor over contemporary prodigy houses cleverly positions the Arivist Sydneys as old gentry rather than the new men they actually were. And if lines are drawn between Penshurst and its more pretentious rivals, they are also being drawn between the Sydneys and their tenantry in a way that naturalises privilege and its exclusions. The walls go up, but Sydney's tenants are ventriloquised into accepting the act of enclosure which they represent without complaint. There is none that dwell about them, wish them down. Rent in kind is redescribed as gifts gladly given, though the rhyme you see coming up between salute and suit, uh, a broken rhyme, a very broken rhyme for the perfect classicist Johnson, let slipped a repressed awareness that older practices of reciprocity are coming under strain. All come in, the farmer and the clown, and no one empty-handed. Now, these are the poor people, remember, coming with presents to the very rich lord. All come in, the farmer and the clown, and no one empty-handed to salute thy lord and lady, though they have no suit. Some bring a cape and some a rural cake, etc. Johnson's own class position, the bricklayer's stepson well used to being sent below stairs to eat, maps onto a subjectivity split between mystifying exclusions and actually revealing them. He marvels that he is allowed to eat without his fear and of thy, thine own lord's meat, and he tucks in gratefully. Here, the house and its hospitality, however bounteously bestowed, is clearly marked as a private good. Johnson's substitution of the manor for the master works very differently to Ohoza's substitution of the castle for the court. Ohoza's evocation of the court's vitality does, of course, reflect handsomely on a Mokir. But there are only two references to the Lord of Fermanagh himself. The focus is on his court, on the poets, minstrels, warriors, scholars, writers. In contrast, Robert Sidney's ownership of Penshurst is hammered home in the poet's emphatic pattern of possessors, thy lords, his lordships, thy great lord, thy lord. I think there are 24 of them. Here the Englishman's castle is his home and nobody else's. To Penshurst gives expression to a new mercantile economy that privileges private property and the related emergence of the nuclear Protestant family represented here by Sydney's fruitful wife and his, that possessive again, God-fearing children. This binary, I think, is wide open uh, to, 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 to criticism. And I think there is would be a possibility of Irish, Irish house poetry going in a very similar direction because of surrender and regrant, which so that very much the, the castle can now become the kind of private property of a lord. I do, it, do, it hasn't emerged in the poetry, partly because it just hasn't had time to bed down 
Um, I, I'm not for a moment thinking that the um, Gaelic um, lords would not have been delighted to go in, in the same direction as the Sydney's, but it, you, we're just not finding that. The ideological implications of these contrasting metonymic <clears throat> patterns, exclusively from house to home, inclusively from castle to court, were played out in the conflict which would produce symmetrically opposed outcomes, not just for country house poetry in Ireland and England, but for the houses themselves. As Don Wayne so convincingly shows, individual subjectivity and what he calls the spatial conception of the self was changing in line with the new privatised understanding of property um, 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 exemplified by Sidney's Penshurst. The cultivation of inwardness in such newly demarcated private spaces produced what Michael Schoenfeld in Bodies and Selves in Early Modern England calls the self-control that authorises authority. But that authority authorised the exercise of control over others as well as over the self. In the Great Hall where Johnson, all 20 stone of him, sat down and tucked in so enthusiastically, there still hangs this flag, a green banner embossed with a golden harp, Lord Deputy Sidney's standard from his Irish campaign. Wayne links the ideology of new men like Sidney to what he calls the earliest colonialist ventures in the new world, unquote. He refers to him as, quote, an active servant of the Tudors throughout his life, unquote. But nowhere does he mention Ireland. It's not in the index, first place one always goes. Um, no, and it's a wonderful book, so I'm not getting at him for that. But no, nowhere does he mention it. Um, doesn't mention his three tours of duty here, nor his centrality to the conquest. It's a vital omission. Sidney's Irish career doesn't just confirm Wayne's intuition. It itself fo functions synecdocally for the wider process of conquest and colonisation that would determine the discrepant fate of Irish and English country houses and the cultures which they represented. If in Kent, Sidney was busy re-edifying Penshurst, in Ireland he was tirelessly slighting castles. His account of his military expeditions from 1566 to 1570 is, among other things, a catalogue of strong castles taken and their defenders hanged. I quote him, I left not one castle in the possession of the rebel, he reported with satisfaction from Donegal. Shortly afterwards, campaigning in the First Desmond War, we find him successively besieging, bombarding, firestorming and eventually capturing the White Knight's principal castle, when he took it, he, I quote, left nothing alive in it, unquote. From there, he moved on to an area just west of Kilcolman, where, I quote, I won and pulled down castles, unquote, forcing a swathe of nobles to petition for mercy, among them Aingus O'Dolly of Duhallow, whom we met at the start. The very different historical forces underpinning Ojosa and Johnson's poems, nascent capitalism feeling its way towards colonial expansion versus late feudalism fighting for survival, therefore go far beyond explaining their very different economies of hospitality. It's not just about hospitality. The, the symmetrically opposed forces of conquest exemplified by Henry Sidney and resistance, exemplified by Mark Macure, 
are precisely the forces which would rapidly transform Irish house poetry into a genre that addressed not houses, but ruins. English country house poetry would absorb the shocks of the English Civil War, responding to its finite turmoil by mediating or meditating on retreats that were rural rather than military. Think upon Appleton House. In Ireland, however, there would be no containing the unfolding havoc. If, Catherine Sims points out, the house poems come into being to exalt the castle's owner, they ended up charting the destruction of both chief and castle. The castle's fall, the heads of lords who had once held court, now ended up spiked in the camps and on the castle walls of the newcomer. Donica Antinach, though, grieves that the head of his patron, Sir John of Desmond, is now staked in a pole in Dublin Castle. As the curtain had dispersed, we are left not just with the great tower houses in ruins, but with the ruins of court culture. A hosa following the declension from eulogy to elegy, the, the genre which had allowed him to celebrate a restoration that had proved to be short-lived in an Eskillen, now allows him to articulate both despondency and defiance. This time, in this later country house poem, we find him contemplating Corrig McIermida on Loch Cay. But though he apostrophises it, a hort road chlan chwil flacht cur, a round, fair pathed court of sap rich hazels, his address is now hesitating and questioning. Antu or Gade Achna, a Corrig, are you a rock? the one I always knew. He, he doesn't recognise it. The power of the foreigners, Fuirnarth Achthrin, has reduced the castle to what he calls an empty, abandoned stump. But though it is almost unrecognisable, is Una the Thask, Kosk, um, stranger appearance, it is still a court, not only with a face, but a mind, Agna and an intellect, Inton. And once again, this is a gendered body, though this time a widowed rather than a nubile one. Thou hast exchanged fair form for shapelessness, as though thou wert a widow, O, o noble, firm, dry walled court. Anguish has destroyed thy spirit. And I think there's something very interesting which I haven't worked out at all. Between, I think there's a transfer going on between the Lord and his kind of weddedness to the land and now a kind of wedding, a, a transfer of that to the castle. So there's this kind of conjugal relationship now between the Lord and, and his castle rather than just with, with his land. Um, still, Ahosa reassures her, a new sp spouse is on his way so that your high-walled, warm, bright court will once again ring out with poetry and the music of fairy harps and the recitation of genealogies. Cast off, Ohosa tells her, your widow's weed and put on your party dress. Eirig id arig irachtish. A resurgent Gaelic chieftain will soon arrive to put the blush back in your cheeks, he finishes by saying. But the tide of history was running against happy endings and widow castles had little chance of a second marriage. In a mid-17th century poem, Murisho Dolly begins by addressing the ruined O'Reilly Castle at 
Talach Mongoin as a widow, Beintrach, and a much loved woman, a Van Muirnach, But having started by imagining the breach in her wall as a penetration, the Talach the Have Grantha, Odoli has opened the way to seeing her as a, be, a, a Van Taida, a wanton, as an Onshuk, and ultimately as a harlot, Madrach, Merdrach. Sometimes when the magic drained out of the fairy castle, only a pool of misogyny was left behind. The natural orientation of Gaelic country house poetry, like country house poetry everywhere, was towards eulogy and legitimation. But whereas English exemplars of the genre powered on, intersecting, as Kerry McBride points out, with discourses of empire, Protestant and royalty, Irish celebrations of the court were redirected by exactly the same forces towards elegy and resistance. The figure of Sir Henry Sidney, who rebuilds Penshurst and demolishes Irish castles, captures a moment of confluence that prefaces rupture, rarely has the evolution and bifurcation of a genre mapped so precisely onto the fortunes and misfortunes of history. Rarely either can the will to power legitimised by one iteration of a genre have sealed the fate, not only of a neighbouring iteration of that genre, but of the culture which sustained it. In the essay which first described country house poetry, G. Orr Hibbard identifies it as a genre that voices and defines the values of the society, conscious of its own achievement of a civilised way of living, and conscious also of the forces that threatened to undermine and overthrow that achievement. That reads like a perfect definition of the Gaelic castle poems that we have been examining. Peculiarly, however, these poems feature nowhere in account of European country house poetry, and accounts of European country house poetry. At the same time, the literature that comes to define the Anglo-Irish tradition, the big house novel, is never discussed in the context of Gaelic big house literature. Rather, big house literature and the whole idea of the big house is seen as an exclusively settler-colonial Anglo-Irish phenomenon. Nicole Pohl states that the big houses of the um, colonists were seen as, I quote, a necessary part of civilising the Irish in her book on um, Anglo-Irish house novels. Similarly, Malcolm Kenzel asserts that 16th and century wars in Ireland were fundamentally related to the belated establishment of country house culture in Ireland. <coughs> I, I look at the date, it's 2003. This is not 1924 we're talking about or something. Um, fundamentally related to the belated establishment of country house country in Ireland. One reason given by Spencer and Davies for the conquest slash pacification of Ireland was that the old baronial order, the savage, had to be replaced by that variant of villa culture manifest in post-Tudor order. Both are completely unaware of a prior Gaelic castle culture. Because of that, they and others inadvertently reproduce <coughs> a combination of the terra nullius and mission civilatrice reasoning of the colonists. To admit Gaelic castle poetry to the conversation doesn't just challenge a historical oversight, however. It allows us to see 
that those who would ultimately come to be divided into colonists and colonizers were once shared a common discourse of authority and legitimation. And when exponents of one variety of that discourse crushed the other, that discourse could be adapted by the vanquished to give expression to a sense of collective identity, to resist and to grieve. To admit Gaelic country house poetry to the canon of Irish literature, therefore, supplies the opening of a story without which the ending makes very little sense. The Irish big house novel needs to be seen as part of an echo sent ringing by Taig Dalo, Higin, Oki, Ohosa and others through the broken crystal window eyes of the shape-changing castle of Tullach Mongon, we can catch our first glimpse of the haunted houses of Irish Gothics, which would be built on its ruins. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this Tudor and Stuart Ireland conference podcast. If you would like to access the archive of more than 180 podcasts from previous Tudor and Stuart Ireland conferences, please go to historyhub.ie forward slash podcasts. All podcasts are freely available on iTunes and SoundCloud. For more information on the annual Tudor and Stuart Ireland Interdisciplinary Conference, visit the conference website at tudorstuartireland.com.